Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Robert Colson, senior correspondent here at RFERL. Thanks very much for joining me today, Rob. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. All right. Uh, good to have you. Well, we're going to talk again uh, about Alexei Navalny this week uh, because developments just keep on coming. It's been 10 weeks and one day, I believe, since Navalny returned to Russia from Berlin, where he'd spent about five months in treatment and recovery from a near-fatal nerve agent poisoning that he blames on President Vladimir Putin. Uh, in early February, Navalny was sentenced to serve two and a half years in prison over a parole violation claim that he says is absurd. Uh, now Navalny is experiencing health problems uh, again, um, severe back pain uh, and numbness in his right leg, which uh, late last week his lawyers uh, said he could not really walk on or, or put weight on. Um Apparently, these, these problems uh, with his physical condition began about a month ago um, and have worsened since he was transferred to the somewhat notorious prison where he is to serve his sentence. Um, it's uh, in the Vladimir region, uh, town of Pakrov, east of Moscow. Now, on Friday, uh, lawyers for Navalny were allowed to uh, see him uh, after protracted delays. And uh, Navalny's allies uh, released two official complaints that he has addressed to prison authorities uh, in the past couple weeks, in which he states that he is being denied medical treatment uh, in what he calls a deliberate effort to undermine his health, and also that he's essentially being tortured uh, through through sleep deprivation. Uh, He said he was being uh, awakened eight times every night, despite the fact that there's a video camera. Uh, you know, uh, monitoring his cell, apparently. Now, Rob, you wrote an article on Friday uh, that took a look back at the death of Sergei Magnitsky, the whistleblower who died in a Moscow jail uh, in November 2009, uh, and whose mistreatment became part of the inspiration for laws in the United States and other Western countries, um, o- allowing those governments to impose sanctions on uh, people in Russia deemed human rights abusers. Rob, do you you think there are parallels between uh, these two cases, Um, the fate of Magnitsky and the ordeal that Navalny seems to be enduring still early in the prison term that's been imposed on him? I, I do think that there there are some pretty clear parallels, um, despite the fact that the Russian government has said that there are none. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, one of the most important is the opacity of the of the whole system, and one of the most important parallels, the opacity of the whole system and the opacity of the government's response. Uh, there's just no, there's no way within the system in Russia to evaluate these complaints and these situations because of the the way that the prison system is set up. So you immediately have to go to to appeals for you know international outrage and that sort of thing is the only way of of securing any kind of change. It should be noted that, you know, up until the day that Magnitsky died in 2009, the, the prison doctors were saying that his health was fine. And, you know, the, the last doctor who saw him prescribed him with a painkiller and ordered a psychiatric evaluation. And, you know, six hours later, he was dead. Um, so that I think those parallels are really important. Another parallel that I see that I think is worth mentioning is that both the Magnitsky case and the Navalny case 
are some, in a manner of speaking, are personal for the security forces. Uh, Magnitsky, of course, was investigating uh, tax fraud and, and theft of you know, corporate takeover theft um, on the part of uh, some highly placed people in the Interior Ministry. And the Interior Ministry officers who were involved in the case, who apparently were also involved in in uh, making sure that he was treated the way he was treated when he right. was being held in custody. Um, Navalny's case is, is sort of personal for the FSB. I mean, assuming that you are convinced by the the very compelling evidence that the FS, that FSB operatives poisoned him, and were following him, poisoned him not just once but tried several times apparently, um, and particularly the phone call that he did in I think it was in December, uh, where he supposedly tricked a. a FSB operative into confessing that the, he was part of the poisoning. I mean, this has got to be, um, like I said, it's got to be sort of personal for the security services. I'm sure that they they got dressed down pretty badly in the Kremlin um, over those events, um, assuming that they're accurate, uh, that that description is accurate. And um, now they're they have uh, Navalny's fate in their hands, and so. You know, you can't help but wonder what what they might be doing, what they might be thinking. Right, and you, and you mentioned uh, the opacity, um, and and there are a couple of striking, and 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 what the uh, you know the doctor's prescription for for Magnitsky of painkillers, um, and just sort of similar things here with Navalny. I guess uh, he said, I believe he said he's been given um, two ibuprofen a day, uh, tablets, and also ibuprofen. Uh, cream or gel, uh, you know, for for his uh, back and leg pain, I guess. Um, you yeah. know, so the, and he and he said that that was I, I forget the exact word he used, but you know, absurd or a joke or not serious. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And and the opacity. I mean, you have the when when the news that Navalny was was uh, saying that he he's being you know that he's experiencing these symptoms and is being mistreated came out, you know, then the the prison uh, service made a statement saying that uh, he'd been checked by a doctor and his his condition was, was, quote, stable and satisfactory. So, you know, uh, you know, obviously not satisfactory for him and for for his lawyers, you know, that and that seemed like, uh, again, I mean, you know, it seems sort of like like trolling and and that maybe goes to the the idea of of the personal uh, you know, feelings in this case, or you know, personal involvement of the uh, of the security services. Yeah, I mean, even more just to the point of trolling. In my view, is the the absurd idea that he's being. Uh, this, you mentioned that he's being wakened up every hour uh, all night long. Um, that's because he's been listed as a prisoner likely to escape, which is supreme trolling in, in as much as he came back from Germany after having been warned in advance that he would be arrested as soon as he came back to Russia. And so he seems like the least likely person to escape. He almost, I mean, those of those people who are wondering what Navalny was thinking, um, you know, he, he just surrendered himself into their hands and in, in a way that is still very difficult to quite get your mind around. Um, so the idea that, that he is being Harass or for because he's a potential escape threat is is ideal trolling in my opinion. It's just almost 
almost funny if it wasn't so sad. Right, and also given the given the uh, difficulty that anyone would have escaping from from this prison, uh, um, you know, I guess also yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a it's a very common practice in Russian prisons to to have a, a prisoner come in, get some sort of minor infraction. I think uh, Hudakovsky had this experience several times when he was in prison. Um, where you know you don't say good morning with enough enthusiasm to a guard, and you're you're put on some sort of special watch, or are given some sort of special punishment regime, or even having your extent your sentence extended, which is also a, a possibility. Right. Um, and so in, in this one, in this case with Navalny, they chose this particular one. It's it's almost like I say trolling in the to the extreme level. Yes, and Navalny mentioned, I believe that Khodorkovsky, in fact, had told him, you know, basically. Try not to get try not to get sick in prison. Um, yeah, be even more vulnerable. So it's it's pretty it's a pretty chilling kind of sequence of events. I think that that's going on. Just one other brief thing to mention related. Um, uh, apparently, the father of one of Navalny's lawyers, Ivan Zhdanov, has, I believe, been arrested or at least had his his apartment uh, searched. Um, so that so and that's just part of the. You know the con- continuing um, crackdown, or you know, I guess persecution of Navalny's allies and 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 now uh, and their relatives as well. Yeah, it's another dangerous case. He's apparently pretty elderly and in poor health himself already. Right. Okay. Um, uh, let's uh, go on to a, a second uh, topic, uh, Rob. Last week, uh, my guest here was um, RFRL. Enterprise editor Carl Schreck, who spoke about an investigation um, that he worked on with the Russian service about the theft of oil from Russian pipelines and the involvement of the police and FSB and other law enforcement agencies, which which is and was quite uh, elaborate uh, and extensive, that, that involvement. Bob, you also uh, adapted a Russian service story um, that touched on this kind of corrupt collaboration um, on a smaller scale. It involved a forest ranger who actually had won an award um, in part because of his record of catching poachers. Um, But now he's the target of a criminal investigation. It seems he may have done his job too well for the liking of some. Rob, tell us a bit about uh, more about this, please. Yeah, I mean, the the story that we wrote was on a small scale. It was about a forester in the Baikal region, who yeah he was he won the national award uh, for young young foresters his father is also a forest keeper his brother as well so he's he's really a gung ho type um and he now faces a very serious prison term for uh allegedly using exceeding his authority and using too much force in detaining five poachers last year the poachers themselves uh, uh, the alleged po- poachers themselves have not been charged at all so it's an interesting case but if you look at the bigger problem of of poaching and and the abuse of protected lands in Russia i mean it, the problem may actually be as big as the as the problem of theft of oil from russian pipelines and we, there have been reports of whole forests along the chinese border or the north korean border disappearing on a mass scale the uh, poaching of endangered species along the chinese border for chinese traditional medicine um plus you know just massive scale of um of highly placed politicians who who enjoy going out and, and shooting endangered species for for sport, um, and the, the amounts of money that are potentially involved are just in the in billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a it's a huge problem for Russia. And 
Uh, unfortunately, we didn't touch on it enough in the story or as much as we would have liked, but um, the forestry service, the protection service, is hugely underfunded. I mean, it's, it's, although it's technically part of the of the security forces in Russia, which are massively funded, obviously, right. um, they get almost nothing. Um, they're going out with, with almost no gear at all and no protection. And uh, uh, like uh, like you said in the introduction, um, they, these poachers are often um, local politicians or people connected to local politicians, and they're, they're protected by the police who, who you know, um, also with impunity, you know, take kickbacks from this sort of thing. I mean, it's, it's also, I think it, it reflects a social contract that um, the Putinist authorities have with law enforcement authorities, that is to say, for political cover, in exchange for political covering the the political situation, law enforcement gets impunity in other ways in business and in and poaching, as we've seen. And so this is another kind of like the oil pipelines. It's another case, uh, you know, case and, and, a, and a broader problem of corruption involving one of, you know, one of Russia's biggest resources, I guess. Yeah. One, uh, one of the quotes that we used in the story, and, and I I did, I'd suggest at the risk of being immodest, I'd suggest that people look it up because it was an interesting story. But one of the quotes was that, you know, if he had been a National Guard officer and had done the exact same thing, or if, because uh, he was he was accused of shooting a, a poacher who actually had tried to run him down with a car. Right. Um, and, you know, if, he, if that poacher had been a political protester and he had been a National Guard officer, you know, the situation would have been completely different. The response of the police would have been obviously completely different. Right. I mean, this, this comes on the heels of, of the protests in January and early February, in which you had, uh, you know, the, the use of, 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 you know, what what uh, many people were saying was excessive force by by the police and security forces and the government and, and Kremlin saying, you know, no, it was fine. So, yeah, that's an that's an interesting uh, Protesters were getting serious criminal charges for, you know, throwing a paper cup at a police officer. Right. And that, sort of and that goes back <laughs> also to the Bologna protests as well. So, yeah, good, good, good point to uh, to raise that. Um, all right. Uh, we're running out of time. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Rob, thanks very much for joining me. All right. Thanks. Yeah. It's great to be back and talk to you again. All right. Um, please uh, keep an eye out for my Week in Russia newsletter on Friday. We'll be taking a break uh, from this podcast next Monday, but we'll be back on April 12th, Cosmonaut Day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>